When it comes to elections, immigration is always a hot topic. But often the people left out of those conversations at coverage are immigrants themselves. That's why Making Contact is putting together a team of journalists that live and work in immigrant communities to help bring those voices to our listeners. But we can't do it without you. That's why we're asking you to take a minute to go to our crowdfunding page and donate whatever you can. www.radioproject.org forward slash crowdfunding. If we raise $10,000, Beacon has promised to match that dollar for dollar. So your donation really will make a huge difference. Thanks a lot, and here's the show. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact. As a black woman who has a black brother, like, I'm just terrified of the possibilities. Like, our lives don't matter. There is an epidemic of murder that's happening across this country when it comes to young lives, especially black young lives, and that needs to be addressed. You know, black life does matter. Black Lives Matter. This simple phrase has become the motto of a growing movement calling for true justice and equality for black people. You can hear it from coast to coast and even around the world, chanted by tens of thousands who've taken to the streets. Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, first typed out those three words back in 2013. This isn't a movement that began when Mike Brown was killed steps from his mother's home and lay bleeding out in the street for four and a half hours. Although the way that the media tells it, the movement started in Ferguson. Garza has been an organizer for more than a decade with domestic workers, immigrants, and other low-income communities. In March of 2015, Alicia Garza visited the University of Southern Maine to tell the story of how Black Lives Matter came to be and express her hopes for where it's headed. On this edition of Making Contact, we bring you an edited version of Alicia Garza's speech. I want to start off by calling some names. Because even though for the past, I don't know, however many months, we have been pushing really, really hard for people to understand that this is not just a moment, but quite certainly uh, the beginnings of a new phase of a long-standing movement. And even though those of us with some level of consciousness understand that this is a fight, not just for all black lives, but fundamentally a fight for humanity, we're still narrowing what this is about and who this is for. And so I want to call some names of folks who don't get as much recognition. Right? We hear a lot about Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis. Uh, we even hear about Mike Brown, Eric Garner. But have we heard about Tanisha Anderson, Yvette Smith, Miriam Carey, Shelley Fry, Darnisha Harris, Melissa Williams, Alicia Thomas, Chantel Davis, Rakia Boyd, Ayanna Stanley Jones, she was seven, Tarika Wilson, Katherine Johnston, who was 92, Alberta Spreel. These are all women who have been killed by the police in the last two years. And then, of course, since the beginning of this year, we, of course, need to call the names of the trans women of color who have also been killed. Lamia Beard, 
Ty Underwood, Michelle Payne, Jesse Hernandez, Taja Gabrielle de Jesus. Since the beginning of the year that we know about, there have been more than 15 murders of trans women of color. And so indeed, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, we're certainly not just talking about black boys. And we're not just talking about black men. And we can't afford, quite frankly, to only talk about some of us when all of us are struggling for a level of dignity and humanity. So to start us off tonight, I really want to talk a little bit about the context in which Black Lives Matter arises. Again, it is much more than a hashtag. Everybody say that with me. Much more than a hashtag. Now go home and tell it to everybody you know. We are organized in 23 cities, and those are the ones that we know about, that we're in contact with, but certainly we get emails and imagery and inquiries every day from folks in Colombia, from folks in Palestine, in Spain, in London, Japan, France, everywhere you can think of, where black people are struggling to be free. The political conditions that we live in today are such that every 28 hours, according to the Malcolm X grassroots movement, in their report called Operation Ghetto Storm. Every 28 hours in this country, a black person, man, woman, child, or somewhere in between, is murdered by vigilantes, police officers, or security guards. Now we've heard critiques. People say, well, I want to understand what's the methodology by which you came up with those statistics. And we say, well, if our own government collected data as to who is killing black people in this country and what is the rate at which we are being killed and why, then maybe we would have some different statistics with better methodology, but I would assume that it might actually be a much higher rate. Now, this is the context in which we emerge as a movement. And I have to tell you that even though the story, as most people know it, starts with Trayvon Martin or Eric Garner or Mike Brown, that really this is an age-old story. I mean, we do know that the history of policing in this country is rooted in the practice of slave catching which essentially was about property and making sure that there was free labor to generate the extensive wealth that this country is built on. But if we were to create a starting point, even for my cohort, my cohort meaning people who are 34 and somewhere in that range, we could start with Rodney King and the capture of the brutal beating of a black man during a traffic stop in Los Angeles and the uprisings that ensued that transformed not just a city but an entire country. We could fast forward to Oscar Grant whose murder was captured on video by one of my students 
and it's now etched in the minds of hundreds and hundreds of people. We could also say that Trayvon is just part of that legacy, where it's not new that a black person would be killed by the police, but it is new that it would be captured by the mainstream media and that the trial would be broadcasted. And quite frankly, if we were to ask ourselves why, why Trayvon and why not so many others, perhaps we could say that it's because it wasn't by the police, that Trayvon was a child in his own suburban community who was stalked by an aspiring security guard, an aspiring neighborhood watch person, and ultimately killed. I followed that trial religiously, and I can't tell you exactly what it was that made me interested, but I knew when I heard about the case, I was riveted. Maybe it's because I have a brother who just turned 26, six feet tall, huge afro. He likes to skateboard. He's an incredible artist, very talented, cartoonist, videographer, sweetest person you will ever, ever meet. And he's growing up in a community that's not unlike Sanford, white suburban community, where even though that's where he grew up and has spent his entire life, has never lived anywhere else, he too, one day, could be a name that we call in remembrance. Now I followed that trial. I watched the arguments, the testimonies, the testimony of Trayvon's friend who was on the phone with him at the time that he was killed. And I waited for that verdict. Now I have to be honest with you, I'm not someone who's invested in people going to jail. I think jails and prisons are not a solution that make our community safer. That's me. But I can tell you I wanted some kind of aberration when George Zimmerman was on trial. Because what kind of country do we live in where a child could be murdered and the response would be, what did he do to put himself in a position where he could be killed? When I heard that the verdict was coming, I was sitting at a bar with friends, with a television, of course, because we wanted to see what would happen. And of course, we were speculating. Even though my friends and I have a worldview about the role of police and policing, jails and prisons, we don't believe in them. But again, we wanted that aberration. We know that the system is not broken, that it works exactly as it's intended to work. But still, we wanted that aberration. Just once, can someone be held accountable for taking a black life? And so when the announcement came that George Zimmerman had been acquitted, I personally felt like I got punched in the stomach. I couldn't breathe. I didn't know Trayvon, but I know 
people like him. And I couldn't figure out how I was gonna explain to my brother, who was not a social justice organizer, doesn't have a huge worldview around race and structural racism. He's just living his life in a community like Sanford, Florida, trying to not be different. I didn't know how to explain to him that even though he's the sweetest kid in the world, that even though he's never heard a fly, that even though he would do anything for anyone, that his life does not matter in this country. And so I tried to make sense of what was happening. And in doing so, you know, I went on Facebook. That's what we do now, right? We don't watch the news. Go on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. And I was even further traumatized because what I saw was a lot of commentary that went a little bit like this. All the conscious people that I know were like, we already know the system doesn't work for us, right? And I was like, okay, that doesn't do anything for me. And then I saw people saying, well, this is horrible, but what we need to do is make sure our kids pull their pants up. Make sure that you're not wearing a hoodie or sagging your pants. Make sure that you vote. Make sure you get an education. Make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure. But all of those things didn't satisfy me because fundamentally they were all responses that blamed black folks for conditions that we did not create. Now, I wasn't satisfied with any of those things. And so I decided to write a love letter to black folks. And so what I said was, it's not about voting. I vote all the time. It's a legacy that I've been touched by. And my grandmother and my mother, you gotta vote. We fought and died so you could vote. But the reality is, they did not fight and die so that I could vote. They fought and died so that I could determine my own future. And voting was a way to do that at that time. And it was something that we were excluded from at that time. We now have more black elected officials than we've ever had. We have a black president. And still every 28 hours, a black person in this country is murdered by police, security guards, or vigilantes. So, I said, doesn't matter if you vote. Doesn't matter if your pants are around your waist or around your ankles. Doesn't matter how many degrees you have. Because I can tell you about my uncle who managed a Wilkes-Bashford in San Francisco, California, and was stopped on the street, no criminal record, and arrested on suspicion of burglary, and jailed for several days by an officer who it's just come to light, and you should check this out, it's just come to light that that same officer who profiled and jailed my uncle is an officer who has been sending racist text messages about how they don't want their kids around black people. 
and about monkeys and things like this. So it's not about your pants being around your ankles or around your waist. Fundamentally, it's about building a world where black lives matter. And to do that, we have to eliminate the barriers to the humanization, not just of black people, but of this country. Because again, what kind of country do we live in that would allow people to be murdered for no reason every 28 hours? So somewhere in that rant that I dumped on Facebook, I said, black people, I love you. I love us. There is nothing wrong with us. We matter. Our lives matter. Black lives matter. And then my sister Patrice, you know, because this is how she does it. She put a hashtag in front of it. And then my sister Opal said, this is touching me. And I think we need to build out platforms where people can connect with each other and share those stories. Because that is one way that we will rehumanize each other. It's not a cry to the white power structure, as has been claimed. It's a message for us that we matter. And we matter enough to fight for our humanization. So Opal built out our Facebook page where people could share events that they were organizing. Our Tumblr page where people could tell their stories and share their ideas. Twitter where you do whatever you do in 140 characters or something like that. And that's how Black Lives Matter was born. We'll be right back with more from Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter. You are listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to Alicia Garza, speaking at the University of Southern Maine in March of 2015. I want to spend my last few minutes talking about the politics of BLM. Um, And we started to a little bit, but I want to make sure that we really encapsulate this idea of all black lives. Because again, I've heard over and over again, these are young people, these are women who are fighting for black men. And again, I say... We are fighting for our collective humanity. So I talked to you about the context in which my cohort emerges. But I have to say that those of us who have been struggling to revamp and reinvigorate a vibrant black liberation movement, those of us who are female and queer and transgender, were not welcome in those spaces. I can remember in 2007 being at a gathering of black leftists and hearing the strategy for liberation, and I was all for it. But I was like, hey, 
where do I fit? Because you're just talking about the brothers, and I'm, we all ride together, let's be clear. But what about us? And the room got silent, and then they just moved on. My sister Patrice can tell you about asking a question about the role of queer and trans people in the black liberation movement, and she can also tell you in that same story that someone spit in her face, a black person. How dare you hijack the black liberation movement for these other agendas? We gotta talk about this, y'all. So when we say black lives matter, we mean all black lives. Black men, black women, black genderqueer people, black lesbians, black gay people, black transgendered people, black bisexuals, black incarcerated people, black poor people. We're not fighting for the black middle class, y'all. Black immigrants, we are everywhere. There are black people everywhere. So for us, when we look around, not just at the network, 23 cities, but when we look around and we hear from folks, what has been your experience in this movement moment? And people say, I've never seen so many black women. I've never seen so many black gay people in leadership. That's what we're moving towards. And not for numbers or for representation or for identity politics but really because the experiences of the complexity of black people in this country contributes to our broader vision for freedom. And when we centralize the experiences of those who are never asked to be at the table, we build a whole new vision for what freedom can look like. So that means that we fight white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity, we fight the gender binary, and we build new types of communities. It's not new, y'all, but it's new for this movement, that this would be elevated and visibilized and cared for and nurtured as if our lives depended on it, because they do. All lives matter, y'all, I said it, you could tweet it, text it, Alicia said all lives matter. It's true. We are all human beings that deserve respect and dignity. But the reality is, that is a utopia that we do not live in right now. And we can't afford to live our lives as if all of these things that I just talked about are not happening even though we don't want them to happen. I wouldn't say anybody in here is a mean person that really wants black people to be killed. But that is the world that we live in. And so, in closing, I will say that if we really believe that all lives matter, then we will fight like hell for black lives today. If we really believe that all lives matter, we will fight like hell for black lives today. Thank you. Thank you. 
So we have time, I think about 20 minutes or so, for questions and comments and things. Hello. Hey. My name is Rukia Mohammed. Hey, Rukia. Hi. What's up? Um, I'm chilling. Yeah, that's what's up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've had this issue. So um, in my community, I'm from Lewis and Auburn area, and in my community, I um, fully support what you, you know, what you're saying here, and I try my best to live my daily life, kind of embodying what I'm believing in. Uh, my mentality was at first to get you know, my friends um, who are black and I to get us on the same page because the more people you have, the more people will listen. Mm. And I'm having this trouble where um, I can't get to them, or at least I feel like they're not at the same level of um, anger, I guess, that I am in. And so I guess my question is how I can get my lovely brothers and sisters uh, to really understand I guess how important this is because it's one thing to try to go make, you know, other races really understand why Black Lives Matter. But I am constantly finding myself trying to make my own race understand why it matters sometimes, mm -hmm. and um, that's why I go to social media a lot of times because I am connecting with those people from all over the world, really. Um, so, any advice on that? Or... Be patient. Okay. Be patient. Organizing is a long process. The process of consciousness raising, some people call it self-actualization, is a long one. It is a long one. And what it requires is your patience and your dedication and your love for your people, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also important to understand we're not gonna win everybody over, just not going to just say it. Yeah. Um, but there's, it's also important, I think, to be thinking about what are the barriers, right? Um, and one thing that I have learned from, you know, however many years of organizing is that the number one barrier for people to get involved is fear. And almost nobody names it that way. We are fundamentally asking people to imagine a new world and a lot of people spend their time just thinking about how they can get by day to day. You're asking people to take a big leap. Yeah. yeah. So be patient and stick with it. Thank you. Yeah. Here and then here. She was waiting. I crossed over her. I'm sorry. I'm going to read off my paper. Okay, go ahead and read off your paper. Um, okay. A lot of us here, us black students at USM, have had a number of horrible things happen to us here on campus and had countless meetings, group counseling sessions, crying sessions with school administration to no avail. Things tend to get swept under the rug. How, how can we keep the administration responsible for making this an unsafe environment for people of color at the University of Southern Maine? y'all like so much um, but you know I can't remember who says this my brain is kind of like Swiss cheese now but um you probably won't get it by asking so let's talk let's talk 
I'm not gonna put y'all on blast or nothing. Um, but in general, I think you have to make it really uncomfortable for you to not get the things that you're demanding. That's how the change happens. You gotta make it really uncomfortable because as long as folks can continue business as usual, maybe have a meeting with you or issue a statement, things like that. You know what I mean? All right, so it says on my chest, <laughs> I am not wrong. Wrong is not my name. My name is my own, my own, my own. And I can't tell you who the hell set things up like this, but I can tell you that from now on, my resistance, my simple and daily and nightly self-determination may very well cost you your life. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. You've been listening to Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Special thanks to E.B. Leonard from Maine Exchange for this recording. To watch the full-length speech by Garza, along with questions and answers, check out our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcast and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.